0: Chapter seventeen. Part one of Shirley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter seventeen. The School Feast. Part one. Not on combat bent, nor of foemen in search, was this priest led and women officered company yet their music played martial tunes, and, to judge by the eyes and carriage of some, Miss Kielder, for instance, these sounds awoke, if not a martial, yet a longing spirit. Old Hellstone, turning by chance, looked into her face, and he laughed, and she laughed at him. There is no battle in prospect, he said. Our country does not want us to fight for it. No foe or tyrant is questioning or threatening our liberty. "'There is nothing to be done. We are only taking a walk. Keep your hand on the reins, Captain, and slack the fire of that spirit. It is not wanted. The more's the pity.' "'Take your own advice, Doctor,' was Shirley's response. To Caroline she murmured, "'I'll borrow of imagination what reality will not give me. We are not soldiers. Bloodshed is not my desire. Or if we are, we are soldiers of the cross.' Time has rolled back some hundreds of years, and we are bound on a pilgrimage to Palestine. But no, that is too visionary. I need a sterner dream. We are lowlanders of Scotland, following a covenanting captain up into the hills to hold a meeting out of the reach of persecuting troopers. We know that battle may follow prayer, and as we believe that in the worst issue of battle heaven must be our reward, we are ready and willing to redden the peat moss with our blood. That music stirs my soul, it wakens all my life, it makes my heart beat, not with its temperate daily pulse, but with a new thrilling vigour. I almost long for danger, for a faith, a land, or at least a lover, to defend. "'Look, Shirley,' interrupted Caroline, "'what is that red speck above Stilborough Brow?' "'You have keener sight than I. Just turn your eagle eye to it.' Miss Kielder looked. "'I see,' she said, then added presently, "'there is a line of red.' "'They are soldiers—cavalry soldiers,' she subjoined quickly. "'They ride fast. There are six of them. They will pass us. No, they have turned off to the right. They saw our procession, and avoid it by making a circuit. Where are they going?' "'Perhaps they are only exercising their horses.' "'Perhaps so. We see them no more now.' Mr. Helstone here spoke. "'We shall pass out through Royd Lane to reach Nunley Common by a short cut,' said he. And into the Straits of Royd Lane they accordingly defiled. It was very narrow, so narrow that only two could walk abreast without falling into the ditch which ran along each side. They had gained the middle of it when excitement became obvious in the clerical commanders. Boltby's spectacles and Helstone's rare bohem were agitated. The curates nudged each other. Mr. Hall turned to the ladies, and smiled. "'What is the matter?' was the demand. He pointed his staff to the end of the lane before them. Lo and behold, another, an opposition procession, was there entering, headed also by men in black, and followed also, as they could now hear, by music. "'Is it our double?' asked Shirley. "'Our manifold race." Here is a card turned up.' "'If you wanted a battle, you are likely to get one, at least of looks,' whispered Caroline, laughing. "'They shall not pass us,' cried the curates, unanimously. "'We'll not give way.' "'Give way?' retorted Hellstone, sternly, turning round. "'Who talks of giving way?' "'You boys, mind what you are about. The ladies, I know, will be firm. I can trust them. There is not a churchwoman here but will stand her ground against these folks for the honour of the establishment.' What does Miss Kielder say?" "'She asks, what is it?' The dissenting and Methodist schools, the Baptists, Independents, and Wesleyans, joined in unholy alliance, and turning purposely into this lane with the intention of obstructing our march and driving us back." "'Bad manners,' said Shirley, and I hate bad manners. Of course they must have a lesson." "'A lesson in politeness,' suggested Mr. Hall, who was ever for peace not an example of rudeness old hellstone moved on quickening his step he marched some yards in advance of his company he had nearly reached the other sable leaders when he who appeared to act as the hostile commander-in-chief a large greasy man with black hair combed flat on his forehead called a halt the procession paused he drew forth a hymn-book gave out a verse set a tune and they all struck up the most dolorous of canticles." Hellstone signalled to his bands. They clashed out with all the power of brass. He desired them to play Rule Britannia, and ordered the children to join in vocally, which they did with enthusiastic spirit. The enemy was sung and stormed down. His psalm quelled. As far as noise went, he was conquered. "'Now follow me!' exclaimed Hellstone not at a run but at a firm smart pace be steady every child and woman of you keep together hold on by each other's skirts if necessary and he strode on with such a determined and deliberate gait and was besides so well seconded by his scholars and teachers who did exactly as he told them neither running nor faltering but marching with cool solid impetus the curates too being compelled to do the same as they were between two fires hellstone and miss both of whom watched any deviation with lynx-eyed vigilance, and were ready, the one with his cane, the other with her parasol, to rebuke the slightest breach of orders, the least independent or irregular demonstration, that the body of dissenters were first amazed, then alarmed, then borne down and pressed back, and at last forced to turn tail and leave the outlet from Royd Lane free. Boltby suffered in the onslaught but Hellstone and Malone between them held him up, and brought him through the business whole in limb, though sorely tried in wind. The fat dissenter who had given out the hymn was left sitting in the ditch. He was a spirit merchant by trade, a leader of the nonconformists, and, it was said, drank more water in that one afternoon than he had swallowed for a twelvemonth before. Mr. Hall had taken care of Caroline, and Caroline of him he and miss ainley made their own quiet comments to each other afterwards on the incident miss kielder and mr hellstone shook hands heartily when they had fairly got the whole party through the lane the curates began to exult but mr hellstone presently put the curb on their innocent spirits he remarked that they never had sense to know what to say and had better hold their tongues and he reminded them that the business was none of their managing about half-past three the procession turned back and at four once more regained the starting place long lines of benches were arranged in the close shorn fields round the school there the children were seated and huge baskets covered up with white cloths and great smoking tin vessels were brought out ere the distribution of good things commenced a brief grace was pronounced by mr hall and sung by the children their young voices sounded melodious even touching in the open air large currant buns and hot well-sweetened tea were then administered in the proper spirit of liberality no stinting was permitted on this day at least the rule for each child's allowance being that it was to have about twice as much as it could possibly eat thus leaving a reserve to be carried home for such as age sickness or other impediment prevented from coming to the feast buns and beer circulated meantime amongst the musicians and church singers Afterwards the benches were removed, and they were left to unbend their spirits in licensed play. A bell summoned the teachers, patrons, and patronesses to the schoolroom. Miss Kielder, Miss Helstone, and many other ladies were already there, glancing over the arrangement of their separate trays and tables. Most of the female servants of the neighbourhood, together with the clerks, the singers, and the musicians' wives, had been pressed into the service of the day as waiters, each vied with the other in smartness and daintiness of dress and many handsome forms were seen amongst the younger ones about half a score were cutting bread and butter another half score supplying hot water brought from the coppers of the rector's kitchen the profusion of flowers and evergreens decorating the white walls the show of silver teapots and bright porcelain on the tables the active figures blithe faces gay dresses flitting about everywhere formed altogether a refreshing and lively spectacle everybody talked not very loudly but merrily and the canary birds sang shrill in their high-hung cages caroline as the rector's niece took her place at one of the three first tables mrs boltby and margaret hall officiated at the others at these tables the elite of the company were to be entertained strict rules of equality not being more in fashion at briarfield than elsewhere miss Helstone removed her bonnet and scarf that she might be less oppressed with the heat her long curls falling under her neck served almost in place of a veil and for the rest her muslin dress was fashioned modestly as a nun's robe enabling her thus to dispense with the encumbrance of a shawl the room was filling mr hall had taken his post beside caroline who now as she rearranged the cups and spoons before her whispered to him in a low voice remarks on the events of the day He looked a little grave about what had taken place in Royd Lane, and she tried to smile him out of his seriousness. Miss Kilda sat near, for a wonder neither laughing nor talking, on the contrary very still, and gazing round her vigilantly. She seemed afraid lest some intruder should take a seat she apparently wished to reserve next her own. Ever and anon she spread her satin dress over an undue portion of the bench, or laid her gloves or her embroidered handkerchief upon it. Caroline noticed this manège at last, and asked her what friend she expected. Shirley bent towards her, almost touched her ear with her rosy lips, and whispered with a musical softness that often characterised her tones, when what she said tended even remotely to stir some sweet secret source of feeling in her heart. "'I expect Mr. Moore. I saw him last night, and I made him promise to come with his sister and to sit at our table. He won't fail me, I feel certain.' But I apprehend his coming too late, and being separated from us. Here is a fresh batch arriving. Every place will be taken—provoking!" In fact, Mr. Wynne, the Magistrate, his wife, his son, and his two daughters, now entered in high state. They were Briarfield gentry—of course their place was at the first table, and being conducted thither they filled up the whole remaining space for miss Kilda's comfort mr sam wynne inducted himself into the very vacancy she had kept for more planting himself solidly on her gown her gloves and her handkerchief mr sam was one of the objects of her aversion and the more so because he showed serious symptoms of an aim at her hand the old gentleman too had publicly declared that the fieldhead estate and the de walden estate were delightfully contagious a malapropism which rumour had not failed to repeat to Shirley. Caroline's ears yet rung with that thrilling whisper, "'I expect Mr. Moore!' Her heart yet beat, and her cheek yet glowed with it, when a note from the organ pealed above the confused hum of the place. Dr. Boltby, Mr. Hellstone, and Mr. Hall rose, so did all present, and grace was sung to the accompaniment of the music, and then tea began. She was kept too busy with her office for a while, to have leisure for looking round. But the last cup being filled, she threw a restless glance over the room. There were some ladies and several gentlemen standing about, yet unaccommodated with seats. Amidst a group she recognised her spinster friend, Miss Mann, whom the fine weather had tempted, or some urgent friend had persuaded, to leave her drear solitude for one hour of social enjoyment. Miss Mann looked tired of standing. A lady in a yellow bonnet brought her a chair. Caroline knew well that chapeau en satin jaune. She knew the black hair, and the kindly though rather opinionated and froward-looking face under it. She knew that robe de soie noire. She knew even that châle gris de lin. She knew, in short, Hortense Moore, and she wanted to jump up and run to her and kiss her to give her one embrace for her own sake and two for her brother's. She half rose, indeed, with a smothered exclamation, and perhaps, for the impulse was very strong, she would have run across the room and actually saluted her, but a hand replaced her in her seat, and a voice behind her whispered, "'Wait till after tea, Lina, and then I'll bring her to you.' And when she could look up, she did, and there was Robert himself close behind, smiling at her eagerness, looking better than she had ever seen him look, looking indeed to her partial eyes so very handsome that she dared not trust herself to hazard a second glance for his image struck on her vision with painful brightness and pictured itself on her memory as vividly as if there daguerreotyped by a pencil of keen lightning he moved on and spoke to miss kielder shirley irritated by some unwelcome attentions from sam wynn And by the fact of that gentleman being still seated on her gloves and handkerchief, and probably also by Moore's want of punctuality, was by no means in good humour. She first shrugged her shoulder at him, and then she said a bitter word or two about his insupportable tardiness. Moore neither apologised nor retorted. He stood near her quietly, as if waiting to see whether she would recover her temper, which she did in little more than three minutes, indicating the change by offering him her hand moore took it with a smile half corrective half grateful the slightest possible shake of the head delicately marked the former quality it is probable a gentle pressure indicated the latter you may sit where you can now mr moore said shirley also smiling you see there is not an inch of room for you here but i discern plenty of space at mrs boltby's table between miss armytage and miss Bertwistle. "'Go. John Sykes will be your vis-à-vis, and you will sit with your back towards us.' Moore, however, preferred lingering about where he was. He now and then took a turn down the long room, pausing in his walk to interchange greetings with other gentlemen in his own placeless predicament, but still he came back to the magnet, Shirley, bringing with him, each time he returned, observations it was necessary to whisper in her ear. Meantime, poor Sam Wynne looked far from comfortable. His fair neighbour, judging from her movements, appeared in a mood the most unquiet and unaccommodating. She would not sit still two seconds. She was hot. She fanned herself, complained of want of air and space. She remarked that, in her opinion, when people had finished their tea they ought to leave the tables, and announced distinctly that she expected to faint if the present state of things continued mr sam offered to accompany her into the open air just the way to give her her death of cold she alleged in short his post became untenable and having swallowed his quantum of tea he judged it expedient to evacuate moore should have been at hand whereas he was quite at the other extremity of the room deep in conference with christopher sykes a large corn-factor timothy ramsden esq happened to be nearer and feeling himself tired of standing he advanced to fill the vacant seat shirley's expedience did not fail her a sweep of her scarf upset her tea cup its contents were shared between the bench and her own satin dress of course it became necessary to call a waiter to remedy the mischief mr ramsden a stout puffy gentleman as large in person as he was in property held aloof from the consequent commotion Shirley, usually almost culpably indifferent to slight accidents affecting dress, etc., now made a commotion that might have become the most delicate and nervous of her sex. Mr. Ramsden opened his mouth, withdrew slowly, and as Miss Kilda again intimated her intention to give way and swoon on the spot, he turned on his heel and beat a heavy retreat. End of chapter 17, part 1